0: Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can search for and subscribe to the channel there. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief or Logical Belief Ministries. Um, if you want to see previous episodes, um, <clears throat> you can uh, find the audio and the video both on the website if you just click on podcast on the top menu bar of the website. Um, if you have any questions or a word of encouragement uh, that you want to send me, you can send all those emails to Jason at logicalbelief.org. NorCal Fire comes to Redwood City, California, September 9th and 10th. Hosted by Striving for Eternity Ministries, NorCal Fire designed to equip you to talk to the lost and immediately put what you learn into practice with guidance and support from seasoned evangelists. The topic is the Word of God with J.D. Hall, Carl Kirby Sr., Carl Kirby Jr., and Andrew Rappaport. There's a special debate, Is Hell Continual? on Friday, September 9th. For details and to register, go to NorCalFire.info. All righty. Just before we jump into the topic for today, I wanted to briefly uh, bring up uh, last week's episode with um, the interview with Pastor Stan Gibson. Um, I had some positive feedback uh, received back from some of uh, my listeners um, on uh, that particular topic, um, the topic of Freemasonry. Uh, We're going to have uh, Pastor Stan back in several weeks, and we're going to continue that discussion And uh, we're going to uh, discuss in more detail some of the uh, ceremonies and practices of the Freemasons and their beliefs. Um, And once again, you know, get into the topic of, you know, is this compatible with biblical Christianity? Now, I did have some people reach out to me that uh, did not think that Freemasonry was properly represented. And uh, if you do feel that way, um, I would encourage you to send me an email or write me on Facebook or hover, reach out to me, and uh, give me some questions that you want uh, Stan to ask um, and uh, let me know what you think uh, he was inconsistent with um, or what he didn't represent properly. I am not enough of an expert on Freemasonry, but I do know something about it um, from some study I have done in the past um, on the topic, and so um it's something I'm I'm going to delve into more in the future, um, but uh, so if you do have any questions that you want me to ask him before um, we do that episode again, uh, another episode in that series, um, just go ahead and uh, send those to me, and I will make sure to uh, put those into the the list of things to talk about when uh, he comes back. So. Alrighty, well, um, what I'm going to talk about today is a topic that I have not really discussed at all um, previously on the podcast. And uh, originally when I was going to talk about this, I planned on, I was going to talk about uh, New Covenant Theology, which is what the topic is going to be today. Um, and I was going to also talk about um, uh, justification. I was going to talk about the distinctions between the Roman Catholic view of justification and the Reformed view of justification and uh, look at those biblically and discuss the difference uh, uh, the Reformed synthetic view of justification versus the Catholic analytic view of justification and also uh, get into some of the things uh, about imputation versus infused righteousness and to get into some of those issues which I think are uh, very fundamental to our differences with Rome uh, however, <laughs> in, uh, getting into the topic of new covenant theology and, and delving into it more than what I've done in the past, um, I don't know how long this episode's going to go. It's going to go for a while. I think, uh, it's probably going to be well over an hour. Um, I don't know if I'll even be able to get done with the material that I have kind of put together for this, um. I, I don't have my notes that well organized, so um, we're going to try to just work our way through it um, There's a lot of things that I have concern with New Covenant Theology um, Especially considering that it is a movement within uh, mostly Reformed uh, circles uh, Particularly Reformed Baptists, mostly um, It has, the main issue that we're going to talk about today is the Their view of the moral law or frankly their lack of their view of the moral law um and the tripart distinctions within the old testament mosaic law and is there any aspects of these that are still obligatory and required for christians today so we're going to um look over that the reason that i i i want to delve into this is because particularly my background uh, as those of you who have listened to the show for any Duration of time you guys know that I have a background uh, in the Anabaptists and the Anabaptists have this exact same view of the um, the way that they view the moral law of the Old Testament in almost exactly the same way with some slight nuances here and there but uh, from New Covenant theology and so it, it appears to me that New Covenant theology is an attempt To marry Calvinism With some aspects of Anabaptism And uh, I've got a big problem with that Um, It was quite a few years ago uh, That I came to uh, Just from reading scripture um, Just came to the the understanding uh, That Of Of the uh, tripartite distinction of the law And uh, This is even before I ever became reformed uh, or ever came to the doctrines of grace um, I um, I held to that the Old Testament moral obligations are just as obligatory to us today and they reflect the nature and character of God God's nature and character are unchanging and all scriptural scripture is profitable for correction and reproof in righteousness so um, this this new covenant theology movement i would call it um is is growing um it's it's fairly new i think it might have started at sometime in the 70s maybe 60s uh from what my um, research can show me has shown me and uh it seems to kind of marry a a dispensational view of the old testament law uh it's trying to marry it with reformed theology and i think also an anabaptist view of the law Uh, in growing up in Anabaptist circles uh, the Old Testament was not considered um, valuable for correction and reproof in righteousness was not considered um, useful It did not contain anything um, that uh, was obligatory for Christians uh, in how we live our lives today and in in doing that in cutting the word of God in half like that you end up with uh, it, it can just send you off into weird places and that's that's what you see happening um, uh, the traditional Anabaptist view was that Christ actually established um, a new law in the Sermon on the Mount uh, and that which was the law of Christ which is uh, the way that we as uh, New Testament Christians should live And my goal today um, is to demonstrate that that interpretation of Matthew 5 is fallacious And in fact Jesus refuted that interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount before, At the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount um, And so we'll, we'll look at that um, but my concern is, is that there is uh, this this new covenant theology movement um, kind of goes away from the historical uh, Reformed and I, I believe even further back than the Reformation uh, view of the law of God and what its obligations are and uh, that there even is a moral law, uh, which is in scripture, that is A reflection of God's nature, his unchanging nature, that has been obligatory for all image bearers of God of all time. Um, We as image bearers of God did not have different moral obligations uh, to God's character in in reflecting his image uh, that was different within different dispensations of time. Um, It has always been. Before The law was ever codified on Mount Sinai it was wrong for men to lie it was wrong for men to kill it was wrong for men to steal it was wrong for men to commit adultery um, it was wrong for men to covet it was um, it was wrong to erect any idol um, it was um, all These moral obligations which we see within the Mosaic Covenant um, are required by God um, to all men of all time and we will get into the scripture to uh, demonstrate that so uh, the first thing um, we want to do before we jump into a topic like this is we want to define our terms. And um, before I even get into that um, I do want to make note at the end of uh, or when I post this podcast um, on the website I will go ahead and include uh, two links to two sermons I would highly encourage you to listen to Um, and that is one by James Renahan uh, back in 2005 and Sam Waldron. Back in 2006 specifically addressing this topic of New Covenant theology uh, And also I'm going to uh, link a an article published by Jonathan Bays um, Entitled The Threefold Division of the Law Which was published back in Reformation Today issue 177 uh, I think sometime back in the early 2000s um, And so I will link that article uh, the PDF to that, uh, so that you can take a look at that. I would really encourage you to read that. It's not very long. I think it's only, uh, let's see, or maybe 15 pages long. Yeah, it's about 15 pages long, 14 pages. So uh, check that out. Uh, it's not a long read. Uh, I think it'll be very highly beneficial. And uh, as you see, as we go through today, um, I'm really talking about a lot of the same things that uh, Jonathan talks in there. And uh, James Renahan and Sam Waldron talk about also So the first thing we have to do is we have to define our terms And um, the moral law is that which is binding upon all people for all time That reflects the character and nature of God And is written upon the hearts of all men And we will look at Romans chapter 2 to see that uh, a little bit later The ceremonial law are those laws that govern the sacrificial system, which was a type and shadow of things to come, fulfilled in Christ. The civil law are those laws that govern the nation of Israel, kept them as a separate people for the purpose of protecting the line of the Messiah. Um, Another definition I found um, was uh, the, the the moral laws are direct commands of God. A good example are the Ten Commandments. The moral laws reveal the nature and will of God and still apply to us today. We do not obey this moral law as a way to obtain salvation, but to live in ways pleasing to God. And the ceremonial law, this type of law, relates to Israel's worship. The laws point forward to Jesus Christ and are no longer necessary after Jesus' death and resurrection. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 10 on that particular topic. Though we are no longer bound to them the principles behind the ceremonial laws that is to worship God and love God still apply and then the civil law the law uh, dictated Israel's daily living um, but modern society and culture are so radically different that some of these guidelines cannot be followed specifically so we apply the general equity of these laws the principles behind these laws um, behind the commands are used to guide our conduct and so that is the, the typical tripartite distinction of the law um, As defined within almost all the Reformed confessions And, and the Reformers And so the, the thing that I would encourage Those of you that are entertaining New Covenant theology um, And uh, or are, you hold to NCT um, and you call yourself a Calvinist. Um, I, I would encourage you to be careful in latching on to something new. Um, sometimes I think that we jump onto things that are too new too easily without doing some deep reflection upon them. Uh, you know, why am I doing something differently? Why am I believing something differently? That has not historically been held by the church for um, at any really period of time, and and, and it, we'll talk about that in a little bit later. The, like the Anabaptists would have held to some of this stuff here in New Covenant theology, but if you're a Calvinist, if you're Reformed, my question is: is why are you um, adhering uh, to some hermeneutical methods uh, and interpretative methods? That were used by the Anabaptists um, that denied fundamentally in a lot of cases the actual gospel itself and so uh, that is a question that I would encourage you to uh, to think about Uh, new covenant theology uh, tends to be considered a theological system uh, even though they would deny that they're a system in a lot of cases Um, that Kind of rides between dispensationalism and traditional covenant theology reformed covenant theology um, I personally as a reformed Baptist would hold to more what's called 1689 federalism which is a form of covenant theology not traditional reformed theology but um, But uh, new covenant theology seems to kind of fall within um, and, and shares With dispensationalism at least the view of the Old Testament And the um, The law of God in the Old Testament And um, So they 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 share that also with dispensationalism As well as with Anabaptism So um, Jonathan Bays In his article says this And I thought it was good so I wanted to read this It says the moral element in the law, focused in the Ten Commandments, is of permanent application, while the ceremonial and civil elements were for the duration of the Old Testament economy only. The ceremonial was a shadow of Christ, which became obsolete with His coming, and the civil a model of legal arrangements for any society, though not of such a status as to demand exact replication. Uh, Francis Turretin, one of the successors to Calvin in Geneva. Um, said this it's, he says the law given by Moses is usually distinguished into three species moral treating of morals or perpetual duties towards God and our neighbor um, the ceremonial of the ceremonies or rites about the sacred things to be observed under the Old Testament and the civil constituting the civil government of the Israelite people and um, where he speaks about the moral law there about our perpetual duties towards God and our neighbor Uh, The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments Are divided into two tables Um, The uh, First four Being our Obligations towards God And the last Six being our obligations um, To man And our neighbor Now some people will say that um, um, Why is the name escaping me right now Thomas Aquinas, I don't know why his name just whoosh, took off, <laughs> uh, that Aquinas is the source of this tripartite um, or this distinction uh, between, in the Old Testament law, between um, the ceremonial civil and the moral. And um, I would disagree with that. Um, Augustine himself uh, said, for example, thou shalt not covet is a moral precept, thou shalt circumcise every male on the eighth day is a symbolic precept so Augustine uh, in writing a reply to the Manichaeans uh, attack on the Old Testament said that and uh, we can see that he sees a distinction between the moral and the symbolic precepts of the law uh, there himself and I think that uh, the Anabaptist dispensational and even New Covenant theology view of the Old Testament law uh, goes back once again there's nothing new ever under the sun You you keep seeing this stuff Repeated all the time and, and those of you guys that are new covenant theology I'm not saying you're a Manichaean I'm not saying you're a, a Marcionite um, I'm not saying you're an Anabaptist I'm just saying you need to be uh, Careful about Some of these things that you're adopting um, That they have a history And they don't Have a good history um, And so I would encourage You to think about uh, that um, Most New covenant uh, or those that hold the new covenant theology are, are my brother In Christ so no, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not putting You outside the boundaries of Christianity This is an in-house discussion um, We need to have a dialogue About these things we need to talk about these things um, Not to say that, uh, that This is not important um, it is Which is why we talk about them But um, Uh, Historically, uh, this particular view of the Old Testament law And a denial of the distinctions within the law um, uh, Has been among some very heretical groups And uh, not within Orthodox Christianity Uh, Justin Martyr uh, wrote um, And he was one of the apologists in the second century Uh, He wrote, um, it says, Uh, Distinguished uh, three types of Material in the law It says one which was ordained for the piety And the practice of righteousness And another which was instituted either To be a mystery of the Messiah Or because of the hardness of the heart of your people So We see Justin Martyr Made a distinguishment within the Old Testament law Um, Jonathan Bays also writes about um, An early 2nd century Writer Barnabas Not to be confused with Paul's Um, um, The one who accompanied Paul in his missionary journeys But uh, it says one of the most primitive post-apostolic writers Whose work is still extant The early 2nd century Barnabas also recognized the need For distinctions within God's law He notes that the sacrifices, burnt offerings, and oblations Have been abolished and replaced by the new law of our Lord Jesus Christ As has circumcision However, he is clear that believers must utterly flee from all works of lawlessness and in spelling out the way of light, which Christians must walk in contrast to the way of the black one, he quotes most of the Ten Commandments and insists, Thou shalt not desert the commandments of the Lord. And he says that in speaking of the Ten Commandments. So it's obvious that this New Testament or, or this uh, post-apostolic uh, writer um, obviously held that the Ten Commandments... Were obligatory for Christians today, and we'll talk about the fourth commandment here a little bit. We won't get into that uh, right now. Uh, I, I have a maybe a little bit different view than most of my Reformed uh, Sabbatarians do on that uh, particular commandment, but we'll talk about that. Um, so, to see what the Reformed confessions and catechisms said about this, let's turn to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In question 40, it says, What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And the answer to that is the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. And in question 41, the following question says, Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are not a comprehensive uh, statement of the moral law, they are a summarization of it. You will find Other Aspects of the moral law Within other parts Of the Mosaic law code Uh, They are however Summarized within the Ten commandments Uh, Just the fact that there are ten Is a denotion that they are a summary Um, And we will look at that More in detail when we start uh, We want to go through Matthew chapter five um, and, uh, And Look at what Jesus Said there And we'll go through a lot of those and we'll see a lot of different moral obligations which are contained, um, which would have links to the Ten Commandments, but uh, are not directly quoted within the Ten Commandments. Um, So the Ten Commandments are a summary of the codification of the moral law that God has always uh, had written on the hearts of men from the time of the fall. The Ten Commandments are not an exhaustive disclosure of the moral law, but a summary of it. Um, And I believe that um, when man fell um, that is when uh, before the fall there was no need Um, Adam only had one commandment thou shalt not eat of the tree Um, he had no one to commit adultery with he had no reason to lie Uh, he had no reason to steal he had everything Um, and uh, he was made good. So that was not an issue for him. God had only one requirement of him, that he not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, you know, when Adam ate that, he um, came to an understanding of both good and evil. And at that point, him and his posterity have had God's law written upon their heart uh, so that they would know uh Uh, When they violated God's law in nature which they were to be a reflection uh, and image bearers of Uh, The London Baptist Confession of Faith 1689 in chapter 19 and on the law of God Says in paragraph 2 it says the same law that was written in men's hearts uh, In man's heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after Adam fell into sin and was given by God Upon Mount Sinai in the form of ten commandments written in two tables the first four commandments constitute our duty towards God and the remaining six are duty to man the ten are known as the moral law so the question is is I've been going through what the confessions have said what historically Orthodox Christians have said um, uh, to see if they did note a distinction between the moral And the civil ceremonial uh, Portions of the law We can see historically that is true But let's see what does scripture say Does scripture ever make any distinction And I would actually make the claim That The scripture just as powerfully As it demonstrates the trinity uh, Demonstrates The distinction between the moral And ceremonial civil laws Um, It does so repeatedly And Um, just as the Trinity as defined uh, in the 4th century in 325 uh, as God uh, as the Father and Jesus being of the same uh, homoousias of the same substance in the same essence. There's one essence in the being of God uh, God um, and three divine persons or subsistences sharing that divine essence or being. That formulation is not found Anywhere in scripture uh, Obviously I grant that But the Trinity is very Clearly a biblical doctrine That only makes sense Of the repeated testimony of scripture That there is only one God But yet there are repeatedly Three persons, three divine persons That share the attributes The titles and um, The The power and The uh, All the attributes of God are distinguished within these three divine persons. And so, therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity just falls right out of Scripture. Um, And it allows us to use Tota Scriptura um, in addition to Sola Scriptura uh, in order to define who God is. And I believe in the same way, while there's no Scripture that lays out that there are these distinctions within... The Old Testament law and that the moral law is obligatory for all people of all time Um, I don't think you can make sense of the Old Testament law if you don't place those distinctions upon them and let's see if there are many places in Scripture where these distinctions are simply assumed and uh, we're going to look at uh, first I want to talk about Leviticus 18 Leviticus 18 is one of those passages of Scripture that Most of you should be familiar with, especially in dealing with um, the homosexual movement that is going on today. Um, But it is that um, passage in the Old Testament about unlawful sexual relations, and I believe that these are all moral obligations. This whole chapter is something that is still um, obligatory for Christians today. And as a Christian, I would go to this text and I would demonstrate to somebody that th- that homosexuality is a sin. And, um, and New Covenant theologians would have to only go to New Testament passages to demonstrate the sin of homosexuality. But I can use all of Scripture because I believe all of Scripture um, can provide correction and reproof um, in righteousness. And... We can see, for example, at the end of Leviticus chapter 18, after God goes through all the things that are sinful um, when it comes to um, sexuality, um, it it says this in verse Twenty-four, Beginning in verse 24 of Leviticus 18 says Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things Speaking of all the previous prohibitions on sexual immorality um, For by all these the nations I am driving out before you Have become unclean and the land became unclean So that I will punish its iniquity And the land vomited out its inhabitants So notice that God was holding the inhabitants of the land of Canaan accountable for what was in this passage but yet this wasn't even written to them and that is because it was written upon their hearts the sexual sins laid out in Leviticus 18 is written upon the hearts of men that it is a sin for them to do these things one question I would simply have for my new covenant theology friends is in verse 23 of Leviticus 18 here it says you shall not lie with any animal so to make yourself unclean with it okay where in the New Testament does it condemn bestiality if you wanted to go to a text of Scripture that said bestiality was a sin there's no text in the New Testament you can go to you would have to go to Leviticus 1823 what about uh, cross-dressing is cross-dressing a sin in the New Testament should men wear women's clothes Um You know I wouldn't have any problem with going Into the book of Leviticus and demonstrating That Uh, And that's because I believe we can use All scripture um, uh, To Denote man's uh, Requirements Before God In um, 1st Samuel Chapter 15 Verse 22 uh, Samuel here Uh, speaks to Saul um, after um, he had disobeyed God in uh, his what he was supposed to do with destroying the Amalekites he was supposed to destroy all of them and all of their animals but what did he do he disobeyed and he said he brought the animals back to sacrifice but Samuel responds to Saul and says in verse 22 of 1st Samuel chapter 15 and Samuel said has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams that's a very interesting statement wasn't the sacrificial system part of the commandments and the law of God What does Samuel mean here by to obey is better than sacrifice what he is demonstrating here is he understands the distinction that the requirement that God has upon all men is for them to reflect his character and nature and to obey that which is that comes from the character of God Uh, and that is better than sacrifice. We see in Micah chapter 6 verses 6 through 8 it says what shall with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams with ten thousands of rivers of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul he has told you O man what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So see here what Micah the prophet is saying here. He's saying that what is pleasing to God is to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And this comes before any adherence to the sacrificial ceremonial law within the uh, Old Testament within the Mosaic Law, and here's the here's the thing: all religious systems have this problem. This is what the Jews fell into after God had punished them with the Assyrian captivity in 1722, and then the Babylonian captivity of Judah in 586 BC. Is that it cured them of rank idolatry? They were no longer bowing down to images, but now. They were corrupt religiously and they followed strictly the religious ceremonial things but they distorted as you can see and we're going to get to Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount but we see Jesus repeatedly correcting them on their distortion of God's moral law um, and how they had made the ceremonial law the utmost they made that what was the ultimate requirement of man. And not God's moral obligations. They had it completely flipped around. And that's what you see within any uh, man-centered, synergistic, Pelagian-type system. You'll always see that. You'll see that man elevates ceremonial systems and religious practice. And elevates that above the obedience of God's moral law. We see this... We see this in the Mormons. We see this in Roman Catholicism. Um, we see this within Islam. We even see this within the Anabaptist uh, that I grew up with. Is that a a a desire to elevate a religious system above uh, what God has required, and that is faith and repentance in Jesus Christ? And so in Hosea chapter six, verse six. It says for I desire steadfast love And not sacrifice The knowledge of God Rather than burnt offerings In Deuteronomy 6 it says God commands us to love the Lord your God With all your heart, soul, mind and strength Which is what Jesus repeats in the Gospels And it says here in Hosea 6 6, For I desire steadfast love And not sacrifice The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings Once again we see God elevating His moral requirement For us to love him and he desires this over any ceremonial uh, law. And we see the distinction here again. In Proverbs 21, three. it says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. It can't be any more clearly clear that righteousness and justice, moral obligations, is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 to 17 Um, god through the prophet isaiah here is speaking to the children of israel and he is um excoriating them for their intensely religious system but lack of uh, justice and um, doing good and it says, beginning in verse uh, eleven of Isaiah chapter one, it says, "What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices?" says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of your well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, and the calling of convocations." Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So we see here is that God goes through all the ceremonial commands in the Mosaic law, and he says they're an abomination to him because what he desires most is that they are, that they are moral, that they follow his moral law, that they do that which is just, and that they correct oppression, that they seek justice, and they learn to do good. And notice how he even includes the Sabbath here. As that which is an abomination to him Their keeping of the Sabbath is an abomination to him Because it doesn't first start with an adherence um, And an obedience to God's moral law In Psalm uh, 40 verse 6 It says in sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted But you have given me an open ear Burnt offerings and sin offering you have not required Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So once again here we see the distinction. We see that in sacrifice and offering God is not delighted. But we see that the the writer here, the psalmist here, is delighted To do God's will and that his law is within his heart. What is he referring here? He's referring to God's moral law that has been written upon his heart. Um, In Hebrews chapter 10. um, This passage here quotes the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40 which we just read. Um, And he says here in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10 it says for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So he he uses the term law here, which I think is the Greek word namos here, but since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So what is he referring to here? Is he referring to the moral law or is he referring to the ceremonial law? Well, let's see. Let's, Let's go on and let's see what is he referring to here. It can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year Make perfect those who draw near He's obviously referring to the sacrificial ceremonial system Part of the law here So let's start over For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come Instead of the true form of these realities It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year Make perfect those who draw near Otherwise would they... Not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins So if the writer of Hebrews is saying here if those ceremonial Sacrificial laws would have had the ability to perfect those who draw near Then there would have been no need to repeat these sacrifices because they would have actually perfected for those for whom it was made Uh, for example in Hebrews chapter 10 14 The writer of Hebrews contrasts this system with the sacrifice of Christ for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we see the contrast between with the work of Christ and his sacrifice and his offering with these offerings underneath the law of Moses. Um, It says he says here in verse three then but these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. So that's all these sacrifices did is just simply remind of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, and here he quotes Psalm chapter 40, where we just read, Psalm 40. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book so notice here a very clear distinction that the writer of Hebrews obviously sees here within the law of Moses he calls it the law but he says that it is um, only a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities this is exactly how we define the ceremonial law within the Old Testament um, code Uh, so when Paul In Romans chapter two, when he also uses the same word law and he says at the end of the chapter in verse thirty one says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So when he says that in Romans uh, chapter two, Or I'm sorry, chapter three, verse uh, thirty-one. Is he saying it in the same context? Is he using the term law there in the same way the writer of Hebrews is using it here in verse one? No, he's referring to the moral law, and we'll look at that. We're going to exegete Romans chapter two here a little bit later, but we can see here a clear distinction uh, between what how the writer of Hebrews is using the term law and Paul uses it. In Romans chapter three, verse thirty-one, it uh, Paul also in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen says, "For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God." So, aren't circumcision and uncircumcision part of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament? So, is Paul contradicting himself? Is he saying? Is he saying that? Um, the circumcision law doesn't account for anything. That command doesn't count for anything, but keeping the commandments of God? No, Paul is not contradicting himself. He is presupposing this distinction within the law that is all through the New Testament. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. In Romans 2, uh, verse 25, uh, Paul says exactly the same thing again, as he told the Corinthians. In Romans 2:25 it says for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, notice he says precepts of the law. He uses it a little differently here than he used it in verse 25. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So if circumcision, circumcision being circumcised on the eighth day is part of the Mosaic law, so how can one in verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised, so obviously he hasn't kept the law of circumcision, but keeps the law, how can he keep the law? Well, he can keep the law because he's keeping the moral law. We see Paul here very clearly understands this distinction. He's not contradicting himself. Uh, and he says here, for those of you that are circumcised, and uh, and if you break the law, your circumcision becomes completely invalid. And it's just like James says, if you are guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of all. So your circumcision is of no value. Paul is Clearly making a distinction here in Romans chapter 2, 25 through 27, and he also does at the very beginning of the chapter, and we're going to get to that here in just a little bit. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So we see that he's saying the same thing here in verse 27 as he says at the beginning of the chapter, and we're going to jump uh, over to that, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. And so we'll just read this for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's almost an absurd statement by Paul. Why would he say that those who have sinned without the law isn't sin lawlessness? Isn't that what it tells us in first John? So for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Well, how will they perish if they haven't sinned against the law that they know? It's because he goes on to demonstrate that they do by nature know the law of God. It's written upon their heart and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, they have not been given the written code of the law, as it just said in verse 27 later on down the chapter. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So we see here that men by nature do that which is in the law and they have the works of the law written upon their heart. Their consciences both uh, condemn them and excuse them, both accuse and even excuse them. Um, they're, the moral law that God has written upon the conscience and the heart of all men, uh, both before the Mosaic law ever came to Mount Sinai and also here in the New Testament period, God simply codified within stone and within the other parts of the law, what has been his moral obligations for man of all time and what is written upon their heart. It has been written upon men's heart of all time that it is wrong to steal, it is wrong to covet, it is wrong to commit adultery, it is wrong to bear false witness, it is wrong to murder. Um, But it has not been written upon men's heart um, before the time of Moses. To sacrifice sheep, to not wear mixed threads, to uh, not eat shellfish, um, to keep the Sabbath. I'm sorry, that was not written upon men's hearts. Men don't know that naturally, um, and we'll we'll talk about the Sabbath here in a little bit. Um. So we can see here that the moral law has been written upon men's heart for all time, and that is why they will perish. Under the law that is why men died um, For the wages of sin is death Um, That is why men died Before the law was given And that is because the law Is written upon all men's heart And they are by nature Lawbreakers we are All by nature lawbreakers We are By nature children of wrath Ephesians chapter 2 Um Um, often, um, New Covenant uh, theology says that um, in the Old Testament, the law was simply about external obedience. And in the New Testament, and this is, by the way, something that also is within Anabaptism, this is something I was taught growing up, the Old Testament law was about external obedience. Um, the New Testament, the law of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, is about obedience from the heart. Here's the thing. God has always required obedience from the heart, and it's all over the Old Testament. And in fact, it's even in the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet. Coveting is a condition of the heart. It is not an external thing. It is a condition of the heart. In Deuteronomy six five, just before the Shema, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is a condition of the heart. Uh, in Job 31 verse 1, it says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Is a condition of the heart. Job understood that it was wrong to look at a woman with lust. That therefore, he made a covenant with his eyes. Um, would we actually say that it was not a sin to look on... To look upon a woman with lust in your heart before the time of the New Testament before Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount before that it was all right to do that it was not adultery in the heart Um, God forbid Um, we see in Genesis 6 5 it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We can see that God judged the intentions and the condition of the heart. In the Old Testament, even before the Mosaic Law came, God judged that. Because men are obligated to God's moral law, a reflection of his very character. Um, One of the fundamental presuppositions of New Covenant theology and uh, dispensational view of the law, and also... um, uh, Anabaptism view is that unless a command is explicitly uh, Restated in the New Testament is not binding to the Christian The question I want to ask you That is what New Covenant theology teaches that unless it is explicitly restated in the New Testament What is in the Old Testament is not binding to the Christian The question that you need to ask yourself is did any of the writers of the New Testament believe this Did they actually believe That the Old Testament was not binding The commands of the moral law of the Old Testament Was not binding to New Testament Christians Let's look at that Let's first look at Matthew Chapter 5 In Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 Jesus says this Do not think Do not think That I have come to abolish the law. Or the prophets. I have not come. To abolish them. But to fulfill them. Now whatever you think. Romo means here in the word fulfill. That's a discussion for a different time. That's a topic for a different time. But if you hold to a position. That the Old Testament moral law. Was abolished. And That. The ceremonial law was not fulfilled in Christ and therefore does not need to continue forward. But if you hold that the Old Testament moral law was abolished, if that is your position, then you are not adhering to what Jesus says here. If whatever view you even have of the word fulfilled, if you have that contradicting what Jesus just got done saying, then you are not exegeting this passage correctly. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished Therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven So what law is jesus speaking of here when he says not one iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished I think he's speaking of even the ceremonial here. Because he accomplishes the ceremonial. But when he says that whoever relaxes. In one of the least of these commandments. Changes the word here. To the commandments. And teaches others to do the same. will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What is he referring to with commandments? My contention is here. That he is referring to only the moral law. And we can see that. By the fact when you go through. The rest of Matthew chapter 5. The only. Commandments that he refers to Are the moral law And we're going to go Through them there's actually Six moral Commandments that Jesus Talks about here in Matthew chapter 5 They're not part of the ceremonial He talks about one civil one But he he talks about it because The Jews had misapplied it And it affected God's moral Precepts so We're going to go through this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, it says, You have heard it was said of old, you shall not murder. What's he quoting? He's quoting the Ten Commandments here, what he just said. Whoever relaxes, he just said in a previous, a few verses earlier, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He, and a few verses later, he says, But you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable of the judgment. And he goes on to talk about whoever hates is guilty of murder. He's talking about how God judges the intents of the heart. Uh, Whoever is angry at his brother without uh, angry at his brother. We see in Genesis 4 verse 5 through 8 that Cain was angry at his brother. And God said that sin was crouching at his door. And then he killed his brother. Um, So this is in the Old Testament too. Um, Jesus was not the typical Anabaptist view of this passage. And I think some New Covenant theologians hold to this too. Is that Jesus was abrogating the Old Testament. And he was establishing a new law. He just said that he was not doing that. If that is your position. That he was destroying. He was abolishing. He was abrogating the Old Testament moral law. Then you completely are missing. What Jesus is saying here. When he says you have heard it said of old. You shall not murder. What he is Demonstrating to the Jews is that God's command Thou shalt not murder goes way beyond just the act of murder The hatred in the heart of man is judged by God Just as much Jesus is showing the extent of this moral law And how it has always applied to man It is applied to men before the law was delivered on Mount Sinai And it applies to after the New Testament And it applies in exactly the same way It was a sin to hate your brother in The Old Testament um, just as it is um, today in Matthew five twenty seven, he says you have heard that it Was said you shall not commit adultery what is He quoting again he's quoting one of these Commandments again and what does he say Whoever looks upon a woman shall uh, to Lust after commits adultery in his heart Already he sh- he is exegeting this passage he's Exegeting the Ten Commandments for the Jews Who had distorted it To only mean these external Obediences to these laws and not The condition of the heart he was showing the True way that God judges the Intentions and thoughts of the heart Um, But we see in the Old Testament We just read Job 31 1 I have made a covenant with my eyes How then could I gaze at a virgin we see that in the Old Testament even Job was before The time of Moses He, he existed before The Mosaic law the Decalogue Was ever delivered But yet he made a covenant with his eyes to not look upon a maiden why because he knew written upon his heart that it was a sin to look lustfully upon a woman. We also see that to look lustfully uh, uh, and to lust after a woman is to covet. And what does it say in Exodus 2017 you shall not covet your neighbor's house and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Um. This would have been a violation of the tenth commandment. Jesus goes on to uh, explain Deuteronomy twenty-four, one. Once again, a moral law delivered to the Jews. Um, it says in Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds, uh, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. That indecency word there, most likely, um, if you do some research on it, as uh, with sexual immorality of some type. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Jesus says in Matthew 5.31, it was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And this is the way that the Jews had distorted Matthew 24. They gave very loose uh, requirements for divorce. Um, it's even noted in some of the uh, uh, writings of the time That uh, they would do, they could divorce their wives Even for some minor infraction Like burning, the, burning their supper or something um, Jesus lays out uh, further on in Matthew 5 Right after verse 31 there That the only reason for divorce that God gives Is pornea in Deuteronomy 24 He exegetes that passage for them um, just as he has done previously. He he provides an exegesis of these Old Testament moral laws that God has given, and he provides clarification uh, against the distortion that the Jews had done um, with this. We see in Matthew 5.33, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This was a command In Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In Numbers 20, verse 2, it says, If a man vows to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In Deuteronomy 5.11, you shall not take the name of your Lord, your God, in vain. This is also um, the... Uh, what is it? Third commandment? <laughs> um, trying to remember. Second or third. Um, third commandment, I believe. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Deuteronomy 23, 23. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So Jesus was correcting the Jews here with their... Uh, flippant uh, vows that they were taking And he frankly tells them just don't vow at all Don't make any vows at all because you're only heaping condemnation upon yourself uh, By the fact that you are swearing falsely all the time And scripture says do not swear falsely um, And so they were swearing falsely and using God's name and the temple and heaven um, To swear their oaths and then not keeping them And the Jews had this practice of if they didn't swear by God directly But swore by like the temple or heaven It was not as much of a requirement for them to keep that particular vow Which Jesus is telling them here You need to stop this You're only heaping up um, condemnation for yourself In Matthew 5.38 um, It is, uh, Jesus quotes the Lex Talianus uh, law from Exodus 21.24 It says, you have heard that it was said An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth uh, and then he goes on to demonstrate to the Jews that they were using this text, which was for the magistrates. It was a civil law for the magistrates to execute justice in the land. It was not an allowance for personal vengeance, which is how the Jews were applying it. Um, uh, so if you go back and read Exodus 21, 24, that passage is to the judges and magistrates of Israel To exact vengeance uh, or justice uh, and not uh, for an individual Jew uh, to um, to uh, exact vengeance on their own Uh, and in fact the Old Testament in the Mosaic law itself says vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly notice God says that vengeance is his it is not it is not for you to take personal vengeance. And so Jesus was once again um, correcting their view of the moral law, uh, or actually, in this case, a civil law which they had brought in to exact personal vengeance, which is a violation of God's moral law that vengeance is His and that we are not to take personal vengeance on our enemies. Um, in Matthew 5 43 he says you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy uh, That is nowhere in the Old Testament to hate your enemy love your neighbor and hate your enemy um, That is uh, The Jews um, had distorted um, and narrowed down the category of who is your neighbor They had narrowed it down to a category of those who qualify have lived in such a way to qualify as being your neighbor those are the ones you're supposed to love Um, we even see this in Luke chapter 10 verse 29 when that when the lawyer had questioned Jesus he says but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus who is my neighbor Um, Calvin says about this uh, verse he says um, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. It is astonishing that the scribes fell into such so great an absurdity as to limit the word neighbor to benevolent persons. For nothing is more obvious or certain that God, in speaking of our neighbors, includes the whole human race. Every man is devoted to himself, and whenever a regard to personal convenience occasions an interruption of acts of kindness, there is a departure from that mutual intercourse which nature itself dictates to keep to the to keep up the exercise of brotherly love God assures us that all men are our brethren because they are all related to us by common nature whenever i see a man i must of necessity behold myself as in a mirror for he is my bone and my flesh genesis 29:14 now through the greater part of men break off in most instances From this holy society yet their depravity does not violate the order of nature for we ought to regard God as the author of the Union hence we conclude that the precept of the law by which we are commanded to love our neighbor is general but the scribes judging of the neighborhood from the disposition of the individual affirm that no man ought to be reckoned as a neighbor unless he was worthy of esteem on account of his own excellencies or at least unless he acted the part of a friend This is no doubt supported by the common opinion. Therefore, the children of the world are not ashamed to acknowledge their resentments when they have any reason to assign for them. For the charity which God requires in his law looks not at what a man has deserved, but extends itself to the unworthy, the wicked, the ungrateful. Now this is the true meaning which Christ restores and vindicates from calumny, And hence it it is obvious as I have already said that Christ does not introduce new laws but corrects the wicked glosses of the scribes by whom the purity of the divine law had been corrupted and that their phrase is the key one Christ does not introduce new laws but corrects the wicked glosses of the scribes by whom the purity of the divine law had been corrupted Jesus was not establishing a new law in the Sermon on the Mount he was correcting the abuses um, of the Old Testament moral law uh, by the Jews and the scribes and the and uh, the leaders um, we'll let so we want to continue to a- ask the question was Jesus and uh, the New Testament writers particularly Paul were they new covenant theologians Jesus in speaking to the rich young ruler who came to him by night in Mark ten eighteen, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother, your father, and mother. Notice how he quotes the Ten Commandments. He quotes the moral law to this young man, and um, he holds him accountable to them. Um, now some people may say well Well Jesus hadn't died yet This was still in the time of the old uh, The uh, Old uh, Testament So therefore this still applies But um, we see in Luke sixteen sixteen It says the law and the prophets were until John Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached And everyone forces his way into it But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away Than for one dot of the law To become void so the law was until John uh and then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So you can't say that this was um after but notice how even this text affirms that the law um does not pass away. And here once again I believe it's speaking of the moral law. In um in Paul in um and we already actually Let's see here. Um, let's let's read uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 uh, and I already read verse 31 here, but let's read a little bit earlier. it says, so that we understand what the law's purpose is here. but the righteousness of God beginning in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God And are justified by his grace as a gift This is not through obedience to the law We are not justified by obedience to the law And Paul is emphatically establishing that here um, That our righteousness comes as a free gift of God Received by faith in Jesus Christ Um through the redemption that is in christ jesus whom god put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this is to show god's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins it has it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus then what becomes of our boasting it is excluded there's no boasting here Because our justification does not come From obedience to the moral law um, It is excluded by what kind of law By a law of works No by the law of faith For we hold that one is justified by faith Apart from the works of the law Remember how he just used the term works of the law In chapter 2 it Says the works of the law are written upon the Gentiles hearts so this is the moral law So our adherence to the moral law does not justify us if we, if we perfectly adhered to it, we would be justified But he just got done saying we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God So we are all condemned by that moral law which is written upon our heart And therefore we can be justified by faith apart from works of the law Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? So the, the Jew here listening to this, after Paul is saying here that there is no righteousness that comes through uh, obeying the law, there is no justification that's going to result from your attempted obedience to the law. That our justification comes through faith alone. So the question then for the Jew is, well, does is the law of any value here? And he goes, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. We uphold God's moral law as our standard of sanctification, as of our standard of the way that we can live our lives to be obedient to the one who has saved us. Um, That is... The reason for the moral Law and uh, That is why we still obey The moral law today as Christians Um, Let's see here Um, Let's get into uh, Briefly here and to close Out here a little bit into The Sabbath Um, This is where I would Distinguish myself I do not believe that the Fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments is part of the moral law. And I believe that we can justify this from scripture. I just read in Isaiah chapter 111 that their keeping of the Sabbaths were not pleasing to him, they were an abomination to him. What he desired was for um, them to seek justice and to do that which is good. Um, so we see a distinction there in Isaiah chapter one also. Uh, But the the problem I have with applying the Lord's Day, uh, the Kudikei Himera, to um, the Sabbath uh, and, and changing it to saying that the Fourth Commandment means thou shalt keep the Lord's Day, is that that means you're actually changing the Fourth Commandment. So therefore you're not keeping it as it was written in the Decalogue. Um, I find that very inconsistent um, so even if you call yourself a Sabbatarian you're not keeping it as it was actually written in tablets of stone it says in Exodus um, uh, 20 verse 20 you shall keep my Sabbath holy that they may um, actually No, let's actually read I don't actually have that text down so let me pull it up but let's actually go to Exodus chapter 20. Where God actually delivered the Ten Commandments And let's actually read The ten, uh, the Fourth Commandment um, It says uh, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord So notice in the Ten Commandments it says It's the seventh day It's not the first day It's the seventh day It's a Sabbath to the Lord your God On it you shall not do any work, your son, and then he keeps on going for and he gives the reason for it in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. So the reason he gives for their Sabbath day here is is that God created the heavens and the earth in the first six days and rested on the seventh. Well, if if we hold, That this is a moral obligation for us today. Then we need to hold. Then we need to actually keep the actual Sabbath. The seventh day. Otherwise if we make it the first day of the week. We're actually changing the fourth commandment. And therefore we're not keeping the fourth commandment. Um, I just find that highly inconsistent. What I believe the Sabbath day is. Is a sign of the covenant. When God made his covenant with Abraham. He he gave the sign of circumcision circumcision is not the sign of the Mosaic covenant the question is, is what is the sign of the Mosaic covenant and the answer to that is it is the Sabbath day the Sabbath day is the sign of the Mosaic covenant it says in Exodus thirty-one twelve: the Lord says to Moses you are to speak to the people of Israel and say above all you shall keep my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations this is the covenant that God had made with the children of Israel for this is a sign between me throughout your generations that you may know that I the Lord sanctify you you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you everyone who profanes it shall be put to death whoever does any work on it your soul shall be cut off from among his people six days shall work be done but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest holy to the Lord so notice once again it is the seventh day And it is a sign Of this covenant Therefore the people of Israel Shall keep the Sabbath Observing the Sabbath throughout their generations As a covenant Forever So notice it's a sign And it is a covenant It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel That in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth And the seventh day he rested and was refreshed We see in Ezekiel 20-20 it says and keep my sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between me and you that you may know that i am the lord your god so notice that this is a sign of the mosaic covenant um, which the mosaic covenant is a covenant which has passed away you have to distinguish between the covenant and the law within the covenant uh, the moral law, which is a reflection of God's character, applies to all covenants of God. whether it's the new new covenant or the old Mosaic covenant, uh, God's moral law has always been obligatory during any dispensation or any any particular covenant. So the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. We see in Hebrews chapter eight verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So if the first, co- uh, the first one speaking of the Mosaic covenant here, and that which is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. If you look at the context of Hebrews chapter eight thirteen, it's obvious there he's speaking of the Mosaic covenant. So if that is becoming obsolete, then the sign of that covenant is also obsolete, which is why I believe that Paul, um, in Colossians two sixteen says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or regards of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hebrews also talks about Jesus being our Sabbath rest. The Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. It was also a sign of the covenant, which is now obsolete. Um, now, do I believe we should hold to the Lord's Day? Should we as Christians um, worship on the Lord's Day? Yes, I believe that we should. I just don't believe it is in uh, adherence to the fourth commandment. Um, and if it is, we would need to keep all the Sabbath laws in the Old Testament if it is the same. Um, and I don't believe that we can make that particular claim. I do believe that we should set aside a day to worship God, um, to rest. Um, but I don't believe it is in keeping with the Sabbath or the fourth commandment. We'll also see, and I wasn't prepared for this, but, uh, you can also see this same principle in Romans, uh, chapter 14. Let's quickly turn there. Um, it says, uh, in verse uh, five, and this is obviously in context with the ceremonial um, dietary laws of the old testament so um, i believe this day that uh, paul is referring to here would be the sabbath but he says he talks about as for one who is weak in the faith welcome him do not quarrel over opinions one person believes he can eat anything while only a weak person eats only vegetables let the one who eats despise the one who abs- Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains so I believe we should um, observe a particular day in honor to the Lord, but let each one be convinced in their own mind. So let's look at now um, some passages where Paul appeals to the Decalogue, the moral law, in particular the Ten Commandments. Uh, we see when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Verses 6 to 11 he says this certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good. Once again we see here that the law is good if the one uses it lawfully. Um, Understand this that the law is is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and for the disobedient for the ungodly for the sinners for the unholy and the profane for those who strike and in the NAS, NASB it says kill their fathers and mothers and notice here as he goes through these different laws he's actually addressing the 10 commandments in order the first one uh, it says, for those who strike, or the NASB says kill, their fathers and mothers. What's the, the worst way you could dishonor your parents? By killing them. That's the fifth commandment. The next one, he says, is for murderers. That's the sixth commandment. Uh, then he goes on and says the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. That's the seventh commandment. Uh, enslavers the 8th commandment is, thou shalt not steal to steal somebody to enslave and kidnap somebody is the worst form of theft to steal a man himself is much worse than stealing his possessions that's the 8th commandment then it says liars and perjurers that's the ninth commandment so notice how he's actually referencing the 10 commandments here in order even when he talks about these particular sins and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine And he says this is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. So notice that here, the law of God is good. Um, He references the Ten Commandments, and he says that this is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Um, In 2 Timothy uh, 3, verse 14 to 17, um, a very famous verse that we should all know. But it says, but as for you, speaking to Timothy here, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Um, This is a word commonly used uh, by Jews and I believe even Josephus uh, to reference the Old Testament scriptures. So when it says sacred writings here. That from childhood he has been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice here that the Old Testament scriptures here are specifically able to make you wise unto salvation. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on in verse 16. All scripture. grafe. Um, He's speaking about now, he's using a term that would even apply to his own writings. As as Peter writes when he says that some uh, men distort the scriptures um, um, or distort uh, the writings of Paul as they do even the other scriptures. Um, uh, Same word there. Um, So here he says all scripture. This includes the Old Testament. Um, Is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness That the man of God may be complete or as it says in the King James I believe may be thoroughly equipped for every good work So notice that all scripture is profitable for training in righteousness and to thoroughly and completely equip the man of God For every good work Let's look at what Paul says In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 He says children Obey your parents in the Lord For this is right Honor your father and mother Then he says this This is the first commandment With a promise How does he justify this? He goes back to the Ten Commandments He says this is the first commandment With promise Now the New Covenant theologian Presupposes that only commands which are repeated in the New Testament are obligatory for Christians. But nowhere is this actually this presupposition actually stated in the New Testament. They simply assume this position. But is this an assumption that the New Testament writers had? Was Paul here assuming that he could not appeal to the Old Testament? No he actually refers specifically to the Old Testament as the justification in particular the fourth or the fifth commandment here to justify his reason for why children ought to obey the, their parents in the Lord and honor their father and mother in Romans 7 7 it says what shall we say that the law is sin by no means yet if it had not been for the law so what law is he referring to here again. You can see here if we keep going in the context he's once again referring to the moral law by no means yet if it had not been for the law I would not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet so for you new covenant theologians out there he says he would not have known what's uh, sin I would not have known sin uh, if it would not have been for the law so can we use the law In the Old Testament to tell us what sin is if the law had not said you should not covet but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law sin lies dead I was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin came alive and I died the very commandment that promised life remember in Deuteronomy 28 that um, life is promised to those who keep the commandments for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and, th- and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The commandments of God are holy, righteous, and good. They are not to be <coughs> forgotten. They're not to be considered abrogated. They're not going to be considered destroyed and canceled. They are. St- they still apply to men today. Romans thirteen eight. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul is obviously here referring to what Jesus said fulfills the law was love your neighbor, uh, fulfills that second table of the law, which by the way Jesus was quoting from Leviticus nineteen eighteen. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quote from Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Jesus was not establishing um The new royal law, uh, which it is referred to in the New Testament, that replaces this. No, what Jesus quoted was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, which is in Deuteronomy 6, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is in Leviticus 19. So this was already part of the Old Testament law. Um. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is, like I said, in Leviticus 19.18. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. It's the same thing that he's saying at the end of Romans chapter 3. We uphold the law. It's not an opportunity just because we have been freed from our sin because of the work of Christ, and we have been justified by faith. That does not mean that we should use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, he's appealing to the Old Testament moral law in Leviticus nineteen eighteen. In 1 Corinthians 14.20, it says, Brothers, do not be children in your own thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written. By people of strange tongues and lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus the tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. So notice how. Paul appeals to the law as the reason for um, them to not abuse the gift of tongues. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 14.34, Paul once again appeals. The reason that women should keep silent in the church, as the law also says, he quotes, he appeals to the Old Testament law again. Um, Paul uses the general Equity of the law We see um, Paul uses the law of Moses to disclose A moral obligation for Christians To provide for those who preach the gospel In 1 Corinthians 9 8 Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law Say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses You shall not muzzle an ox When it treads out the grain Is it for oxen? That God is concerned. The question is obviously rhetorical. Does not he certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sakes. Because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher thresh in hope. Of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you. Is it too much. If we reap material things from you. If others share this rightful claim on you. Do we do not we even more. Paul is saying here. That those who preach the gospel. Um have the right to be provided for uh, materially uh, for their proclamation of the gospel. And he appeals to the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul was not a New Covenant theologian. What is sin? In 1 John 3, 4, I already quoted this earlier, everyone who makes a practice of sin Sinning also practices lawlessness Sin is lawlessness it Is breaking the law of God um, In Galatians 5.13 It says For for you were called to freedom, brothers Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh I already read that verse So I'm not sure why I'm going back to that one But let's uh, go on um, So the fundamental presupposition of New Covenant theology is that if something is not repeated in the New Testament, that it is not obligatory for the Christian. But I gave already two examples before. Is bestiality still a sin in the New Testament? What about cross-dressing? What about should Christians spank their kids? Um, I believe it. we should, as Christians, we should spank our kids. It is biblical for us to do that. But you can find no text In the New Testament that tells that only in the Old Testament are we told to use the rod to punish our children so those are my thoughts uh, on New Covenant theology I encourage you to check it out uh, to do some more research uh, into these things yourself Um, I'm going to go ahead and link those other sermons I encourage you to listen to those and to uh, read the paper also uh, linked So hopefully uh, this was beneficial to you and um, that uh, you would be encouraged and edified by it. Uh, Hopefully we'll see you guys next week. Uh, I'll probably be talking about uh, the topic of justification next week. And then we will uh, come back with um, uh, the subject of Freemasonry again. So thanks for joining us again. And uh, we'll hopefully see you next week, Lord willing. God bless. Don't you know that the unjust Will not inherit God's kingdom And through Adam's offense I uh-huh.